This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner. And I'm Marianne Hitt, and this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, Marianne and I have such an amazing conversation to share with you. We talk with one of my all-time favorite humans, renowned musician, activist, and spiritual leader, William Matthews, about his hopes for these tumultuous times, and as Oprah would say, how a new day is on the horizon. But first, Anna Jane and I have some catching up to do. Happy New Year's! Hi, Anna Jane. How are you doing? I am good. I'm, you know, 2018 has not been perfect, but it's treating me well so far. I'm digging it. But, you know, we've got a lot, a lot of stuff coming up that's, that's real and important and that we need to be beyond for. So, so tell us um, from your climate world expert vision, what, what should we be anticipating? How should we be up for the fight? Well, when it comes to 2018, we have got our work cut out for us. And as usual, I have rays of hope to offer. So there was a headline in the New York Times within the last few days that is a fair summary of, I think, what to look for this year. Uh, The headline was, expect environmental battles to be even more significant in 2018. And I think what we saw in 2017 was a lot of announcements and intentions out of the Trump administration, whether it's the intention to exit the Paris Agreement or get rid of the clean power plan or drill in the Arctic. I don't want to depress you by going on with the list, so I will stop. But um, uh, but the, a lot of those announcements were made, and 2018 is going to be the year when we see whether or not they can come to fruition, whether they can come to reality, because there will be battles in the courts, there will be battles through the regulatory process, and there will be battles in the courts of public opinion. And that is, again, where all of our listeners uh, need to stay vigilant, stay involved. We will keep in the show notes and on this podcast letting you know how you can be involved. Uh, But the rubber is really going to meet the road in 2018. And uh, and we still do have new threats coming. I'm sure, Anna Jane, that you were horrified by the offshore drilling announcement in recent days from the Trump administration. They announced they want to open lots more of our oceans to offshore drilling. And a lot of the eastern United States in particular, um, there has been a ban on offshore oil drilling for a long time. So places like the Outer Banks of North Carolina or the beautiful beaches of, of Florida, at least had some protection against oil spills that would, you know, wreck the beaches and wreck the tourism economy. And that ban has, there's an attempt now by the Trump administration to lift that, but we are still, I think we're getting into really the the thick of whether they're going to be a reality. And I will close with just a note of hope, which is 
just as we've been recording this episode of the podcast, uh, news broke that one of those bad ideas from the Trump administration has hit a major hurdle. It was a proposal out of the Department of Energy and from Rick Perry uh, that would have forced the bailout of these very uneconomic coal and nuclear power plants. They were coal and nuclear power plants. There are lots of them that are not able to compete anymore with renewable energy. And so these power companies and coal mining companies were trying to force American families to pay for the electricity from those power plants, even though they're not competitive anymore. And the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, just said, no, we're very vigilant for what they're going to do next. They say they're going to open up this process and look into whether our electricity supply is reliable. And that's a place for all sorts of hijinks to happen. But it was a victory. And it was in part uh, because of huge amounts of public opposition to this proposal. So that's my preview of 2018 is more bad ideas will be coming. The prior bad ideas are going to try to come to fruition, but we can stop them. And that's where we need folks to stay engaged. And we already have a victory. Exactly. First victory of 2018. And we're only eight days in. So go team. Thank you so much for keeping us updated. Well, (laughs) absolutely. And not always to be the the bearer of bad news, but there's some good news too. But what are you thinking about 2018? As you're looking ahead, what, what are you reflecting on and thinking about? I, yeah, I'm really, I've been just doing, I've kind of spent my, my birthday is the first week of January, January 7th. So it's always the beginning of the year is always kind of a time for me to do some deeper reflection. I mean, I know it is for most everyone, but for me, um, especially I've been trying to take it really seriously. And I think the big things that I've been thinking about, um, is, you know, last year was traumatic and tumultuous. Um, and I really didn't do a particularly good job of taking care of myself. <laughs> um, just basically trying to, you know, survive every day. <laughs> and um, I really want to focus on, you know, I, I really believe that we are our best asset. And if we don't take care of our hearts and our brains and our bodies, then we don't have as much to give to this really important work. And so I am starting the New Year's out along with like half of America doing a cleanse and really trying to focus on meditation and getting into a better exercise routine. And I encourage all of our listeners to, um, to, to do whatever it is in your life that makes you feel alive and healthy and well and present because we need, uh, we need our best game. And I feel like last year was just clinging on for dear life and then doing whatever I could to try to, to try to, you know, do something positive. And this year is about being really intentional, um, about taking care of myself so that I can offer more to the world. Um, yeah, so that's been definitely on my mind. And then, and I think that, you know, I, I just loved what Oprah's amazing speech in the Golden Globes about the importance, you know, the, one of the most powerful things that we have to give is sharing our truth and our story and our voice. And I think like many women in this country and, and many men as well, I struggle with that sometimes, like really, um, feeling empowered to, to share, um, share my perspective and my voice and my story. And I want to own that some more this year and really think through, um, you know, ways that I can use my story to help, you know, make this world a better place. So those are the kind of the two. And I also encourage everyone to do that because we all have these really fascinating, empowering stories. And, and there's something, I mean, like the Me Too movement, I think has really pointed out, there's something so valuable and life affirming and sharing them. Um, and realizing that that we have a lot in common with each other and that we can help each other. So 
those are my two big things going into this year that that I'm going to try to to be really intentional and thoughtful about. Well, and you mentioned Oprah's Golden Globe speech, and I I love that Anna Jane. I love all of that. I share all those aspirations for myself. And the other part of her speech about something better being on the horizon. And that is, you know, that's what I'm really excited about in this interview with William Matthew Matthews to share with our listeners, because we had an incredible conversation with him. And he's very hopeful about what is being born out of these very dark times and the, the hope that is on the horizon that we're all working towards. And I left that conversation feeling really inspired and uplifted and I want to thank you, you to our friends for bringing him to the podcast. And I'm so excited to share this conversation with our listeners. And we will share that with you right after this. Hi, my name is Jess and I'm from Denver, Colorado. Here's your dinner party climate fact for the day. According to the NAACP, 78% of African-Americans live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant. African-American children are three times more likely to go into the emergency room for an asthma attack than a white child and twice as likely to die from an asthma attack. Today on our first podcast of 2018, we have one of my all-time favorite human beings. Um, he is a dear friend. He is a brother. He is one of my heroes. Um, we have William Matthews. Um, so just to give you a little bit of context, welcome, William, to our No Place Like Home podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited uh, to be part of this. A little context. Uh, William and I both come out of kind of the evangelical space, but we actually ironically did not know each other. <laughs> growing no, up. Well, I went to your dad's church for a while. Didn't know didn't, you then. I know. It's so crazy. We just kind of uh, crossed paths, but we ironically met in Paris at the uh, COP21, the big climate conference. Um, William, um, he's just one of the reasons he's such a hero to me. Um, you are such a hero to me. It's just your willingness to to take these incredible risks for what you really believe is right and true. Um, and so for our listeners who may not know who William is, he's an incredibly um, popular and talented um, Christian, well, not just Christian music artist. He is a <laughs> popular and talented artist, um, musician, singer, songwriter, who has a big following within the kind of white evangelical space, although he's branching out um, all over the place these days. But at the time that he came to Paris to talk about climate change and to meet all these people who are impacted by climate change, it was still a very taboo subject within uh, white evangelical circles. And he just really, um, he did it anyways, because he thought it was important. And uh, William, I would, I would love to just kind of get your, get your side of the story of like, what motivated you to engage on a subject matter that was kind of controversial for many of the people, um, many of your, your fans and followers at the time? Yeah, uh, I think for me, there was just this urgency to not just the global warming issue, but to how the, those issues of climate and sea level rise because of, you know, polar ice caps melting and Greenland uh, melting. And, and I began to connect the dots for how uh, the, the changing ecosystem was affecting people all over the world, it was affecting the poor of the earth. And when I began to see images of unseasonal droughts and famines, and when I began to see 
the drought in Brazil, I remember, uh, you know, a lot of that having to do with, you know, cutting down a lot of the Amazon and there's not as many trees to create rain. And um, when I started connecting uh, these images of polar bears, so to speak, <laughs> that a lot of the climate movement, you know, at least have been known for in Christian space to real people in real time, that there are people living in coastal lands that, that could no longer live there anymore. When I started to see uh, the effects of climate change on individual societies and nations, I think that's when my heart shifted. And I realized that this was a, it's funny because it shouldn't even had to be that. Like I should have just cared about the planet for it being the planet <laughs> and being part of God's creation. Like somehow that wasn't enough when it was polar bears, you know, or somehow it wasn't enough when it was uh, deforestation, you know, and I, or, or melting polar ice caps. I, I kind of realize that now on the back end, but for me to answer your question, what, what connected me was the human element was realizing that they're displaced people because of climate change and that there's an indirect link between war, <laughs> uh, especially in, you know, countries like Syria and the, the Syrian refugee crisis that, 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 you know, came about because of an unseasonal drought. I think the human element is what connected me. And I realized that God loved humanity. And if God loved humanity and the planet, then so should I. And William, uh, this is Marianne. As I think, you know, I work on coal fire power plants at the Sierra club, which are our biggest source of climate pollution. And mm -hmm. I understand that you grew up or spent a lot of time as a kid in a neighborhood very close to coal-fired power plants in Detroit, which are not just the biggest source of, of that carbon pollution in the U.S. that's yeah. threatening our climate, but also mercury and sulfur dioxide and, and pollution that causes a lot of health problems for people. So can you, uh, can you talk more about what it was like growing up there? Okay, so I remember going to church every Sunday, and we used to go to church on the, at Southwestern Church of God, which is a small uh, black church on the southwest side of Detroit. And every Sunday, or just going to my grandmother's house in general through the week, if not definitely on Sunday, uh, we you would get off the exit. And I remember looking at this massive power plant. I think it's a gas refinery or some type of, yeah. And it's marathon gas. And, and it's just smokestacks, billowing, billowing smokestacks. I remember as a kid just seeing how, feeling how daunting it was to look at this monstrosity of a building getting off the exit going to my grandmother's house headed to church you know we'd always eat at my grandmother's house after church and so i would see it and didn't really think much of it at the time what what i later realized was during that time my oldest sister had spent several years going to school in southwest detroit and as and throughout the entirety of my childhood she had terrible asthma um and she had to get an inhaler and she would have these fits and I remember that being a little bit of a strain on our family or having to navigate that with her or even the fear that if my sister doesn't have her inhaler, like she might die. Come to find out there was so much uh, pollution being poured into the atmosphere in Southwest Detroit that uh, I think it was Newsweek or Anna, Anna Jane actually sent me the article and it blew my mind that they began to study all these cases of severe asthma with uh, black youth in Southwest Detroit. And the thing is, we moved from uh, Detroit when I was 10 years old. My older sister was 15. And by the time she was 18, all of her asthma completely stopped. She's never had an asthma attack since. Um, and it was like getting out of that environment was the 
<laughs> was the thing that actually saved her because she was being poisoned and, and we were being poisoned. And, and, and the other story I'll, I'll tell you real quick, I think that's what you're alluding to as well, is my grandmother, uh, who her house in Southwest Detroit is now worthless because she can't breathe the air there. No one can breathe the air there. She told me uh, about a year ago, she said, I watched all of my neighbors who gardened in their backyards they all died of cancer in their 60s. My grandmother's 87. She said she never didn't understand what was happening with pollution, but she said, I never felt a peace about gardening or planting anything in our yard. I just didn't. She's like, I don't know why. I saw other people do it. My neighbors did it. All the women in our, they did it. She goes, I just didn't feel like it was right to do that. I didn't know why. Not realizing that the ground was in the soil was being poisoned. And now those houses are worthless. Uh, this whole neighborhood is breathing toxic air. My grandmother lives about another 20 minutes south of Southwest Detroit, uh, rents out an apartment there so she can live. Um, and the house that she raised all her children in is worthless and no one is taking responsibility in the city of Detroit for the environmental racism that's happening there. Perhaps a small little ray of hope, but I would love to come back to that topic of environmental racism. The two coal plants in that neighborhood that were not the only sources of pollution, but they were very big sources of that dangerous pollution, mm -hmm. uh, have been finally slated to retire. And that came about in large part because of a huge amount of pressure from people in the community demanding that the coal-fired power plants either get cleaned up or shut down. So there's lots of other sources of pollution, yes. but that is a great, a great victory for local folks who were determined to fight for their community. And that, that fight was led by folks in that community. So a little, awesome. That is so good to hear a little. So there is hope, but we can win, but um, I'd love to just talk more about, you know, if, if listeners aren't familiar with the concept of environmental racism, the idea that communities of color are disproportionately affected by pollution, climate pollution, air pollution um, through your, through your work, both in your in the community and in going to Paris, what are your what are your hopes and dreams for how we might better tackle that issue as a society? And also coming from your faith perspective, I think what's happening right now is there's this seismic shift that is happening where people who have been victimized are starting to speak up. Where there's been an imbalance of power on the corporate level, on the political level, that has. Uh, the planet that has driven a lot of city planning things in terms of racism and redlining. And I think people have, have had enough and they're speaking up about what is truth and what is uh, the way forward. And one of the things that encourages me is I think we are building these new coalitions uh, to dismantle systems of oppression, whether, uh, you know, white supremacy and sexism and, and race, racism and patriarchy. And I think what's happening right now is we're beginning to take back our cities. We're going to begin to take back our, our land. We're going to begin to take back everything that has been destroyed through corrupt policies. And so to me, I think the intersection of environmental environmentalism and racism is so crucial because all of these things are interconnected and interwoven to each other. Like we can't talk about environmentalism without talking about racism. We can't talk about racism without talking about patriarchy. And we can't talk about patriarchy without talking about white supremacy. And we can't talk about white supremacy without talking about misogyny. Like, and we can't talk about misogyny without talking about homophobia and the interconnected 
relationship that these things have. And I think we're seeing a very clear understanding of how those systems interrelate and, and how we can, through political mobilization and through like the story you just told um, in Detroit about citizens raising their voices and demanding these things to be shut down, I think we're, we're seeing kind of what Maxine Waters says, a reclaiming of time. <laughs> and it's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch. And, and you know, Paris was in, eye-opening for me because uh, walking around that that event, what I saw was I saw scientists, I saw city developers, I saw innovators and people coming together asking the question, how do we rebuild cities and nations? How do we build cities around renewable energy? How can we, we make our cities more efficient? And by making our cities green, we are thus making them more efficient. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're building transportation systems that are running on renewable power that actually can connect uh, disenfranchised people from one end of their city to another end of their city. Like Chicago would benefit from that, you know, a type of system like that or, or Baltimore or, you know, uh, so many of the Detroit, so many of these cities can benefit from a complete renewal of the way we do energy, the way we do um, human rights, the way we do uh, political policy. And and so I think Paris for me was like walking into a vision of the Old Testament prophets. And I, I think of the scriptures where it talks about um, that you will raise up former foundations and restore ruined cities. And that there, th- this call came multiple times from many different prophets to Israel every time their city was in ruin or every time, you know, an oppressive army came and destroyed uh, the temple or whatever God had done, that, that there was always a, a call that the prophets gave to restore the city, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. And and I think we're witnessing that spiritual call happening today. And Paris for me was, to me, a fulfillment of that prophecy. I was watching the science and, and technology and manufacturing, looking at ways for how to create a sustainable planet, how to create sustainable cities. And or even urban farming uh, being a part of that, and and I think that was a vision to unify us to to rally around. That's what inspired me about Paris. Oh, it's so beautiful! I'm just like close to tears thinking about how incredible that experience was, and also just how you've gone on to be such an incredible voice and advocate. You know, going to D.C. and advocating directly to our political leaders about climate change um, and these related. Issues going to bond for the COP this past um, this past um, December to talk about um, you know really elevating Christian voices on climate change and yeah. also extending beyond that. Like I've just been um, so honored to serve with you on the board of Micah Challenge, which for our listeners is this in, uh, really incredible nonprofit that works with young Christians um, on a, a variety of justice-related issues. But over the past couple of years, they've focused predominantly on um, climate change and also refugees and racism have become kind of the three focus areas for Micah Challenge. And William was a, a critical key part of pulling together 40 uh, young Christian leaders this past fall um, to talk about about uh, refugees, racism, and climate change, and how they all interrelate. Mm-hmm. And it was true. And education, yeah. Yeah, it was just absolutely one of the most incredibly empowering and um, just awe-inspiring ev- event that I've ever been to. And I just wanted, I wondered if you could speak a little bit about 
about you know what drove you to kind of pull that group of people together and those that group of issues together. And also uh, one of my favorite things that came out of that is a, a pastor, one of the few older pastors who was there. And I think by older, I mean like he was like maybe 43. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. An incredible, um, actually he's a megachurch pastor, um, a black pastor out of California, but he got up to the whole group of these like very um, burdened and heartbroken young Christians, like who uh, were very troubled by how a lot of white evangelicals in particular have been, have come become beholden to Trump and, and that kind of racist, anti-climate, horrible agenda. But he got up to all of us and just said, you're not crazy. <laughs> and that was like, <laughs> such a like liberating uh, moment for me because, I mean, I feel like all of us over this past year have had moments where like, we're like, what the hell is going on? Like, are we crazy? Like, do we end up in a alternate universe? Like, you know, even, especially with my, you know, my dad, who you know well, being such a huge uh, champion of Trump, oh, yeah. it just messes with your mind. So I just, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that experience and how you, yeah. I saw you did a Twitter thread on it recently. So I'd love to hear this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you identified uh, the, the, the biggest symptom of the problem itself, Trump. He's not the root of the problem, but he's the symptom. Um, and he's the symptom of decades of intellectual decadence, <laughs> anti-intellectual decadence, <laughs> uh, and bad theology and bad conservatism, uh, and bad media too. But, uh, I think that was galvanizing. Like you said, for a lot of us, we begin to witness kind of the outright hijacking of our faith, that the faith of Jesus Christ would even remotely be used as some sort of Christian nationalist mass message was, was so disgusting, vile. And, and it was a slow turn. We, it had been happening for a while, but the, the anointing of the, of the, of the, the leader himself, Trump, you know, by uh, evangelicals and, you know, even the way that they not just prayed for him as just any other person would pray for him, but the type of anointing thing that they did almost in the way that Samuel chose David, uh, uh, that many of these people began to pass around prophetic words uh, that he was God's trumpet and that he was, you know, the, you know, he was basically God's anointed candidate <laughs> and was going to lead him like re-Christianize America, basically. And so I think watching the hijacking of our faith was something that pushed a lot of us to really begin to take seriously public policy, to begin to take seriously political power, because I think a lot of us were pretty apathetic to some level uh, outside of different causes towards uh, political agenda. And I think what we witnessed was just a a new moral reimagining. And so my work with Micah Challenge was primarily to mobilize, coalesce millennials, millennial influencers, Christian millennial influencers who, you know, not try to convince anyone that of what they don't understand as much as to rally the people who feel the same way about this, who beat to the same drum, who, who have the same alarm in their spirit, so to speak. And that's what we did. And so we gathered uh, this group of Motley crew, so to speak, and had probably one of the best times, most encouraging times I think I had in all of 2017. I'll say this too, and this is kind of something I'm, I've been studying a lot from a theological point of view. I think the climate movement needs to embrace a type of spiritual understanding. I'll call it that. I don't think it needs to become a part of one religion as much as I think there needs to be a spiritual understanding that, that all things are interconnected and that the, the notion of God is not simply 
I, th- I think what's happening is bad religion has taught us that God is separate from creation. God is separate from you and me. God is separate from the universe that he created, where I think good spirituality, good religion calls us to understand that God is not a being, but the essence of being itself, that he is the interconnection point in between every atom, every particle, everything that we believe that is important, that God is an a dynamicism that is moving in and through the universe, that God is even part of the evolutionary processes itself that is bringing about uh, fullness and fulfillment. And I think having a spiritual understanding for these things connects the dots for people like prophets, priests, and poets. What we did was we connected global refugees to racism. We connected racism to climate change. We connected climate change to xenophobia. Like we, we connected dots because they all are truthfully interrelated because our universe is interconnected and interrelated. And there's, there is a divine force. I think that is, that is uh, making these interconnection points. And I think that's where religion needs an update and religion needs a, a better focus bad religion particularly, is to preach a, a cosmic view of Christ. Well, Anna Jane and I would love to uh, join you in that effort. That's part of what we are trying to do on this podcast and in our work as climate advocates. And uh, the last question, so I look forward to continuing that conversation, but the last question for me would be, uh, as climate advocates, as social justice advocates, these are hard times. And I, you ha- you're your thoughts and reflections have given me a lot of hope and the reality is still some days are hard to get through. And as a a spiritual leader, I was wondering if you could provide a, a blessing, you know, I'm sure not all of our listeners are people of faith, but they all care very much about this world in some way or another, sort of a blessing or a word of encouragement for them when things do look hard and they do look bleak as they often do in these times. Yeah. I can only offer what I've been given or what I've personally uh, navigated through, which is to, and I think people are already doing this, so it's not to give something that people don't already have. But uh, I wrote in that thread, Anna Jane, I said, you know, I get angry a lot. (laughs) I read the headlines too, just like everyone else. And I read the articles and I get angry and I jump on Facebook (laughs) and I have conversations and I get angry again. And then I get a little depressed and then I read and then I, I pray. And then I get angry again (laughs) and then I read some more and I sometimes sit in silence and I listen and then I pray again. And I think for me, what has helped me navigate these complex times is a more centered practice around meditation and, and spiritual focus and taking time to just get out of the antagonism of social media antagonism of actually I don't think social media is antagonizing. I think it's people, people in social media and the news cycle that is antagonistic and take time out from that to just sit and be with my thoughts. And I find that to be very refreshing and whether it's listening to music, meditative music to uh, bring about a contemplative mind. I think that is pretty much the only thing that's going to help any of us navigate the times we live in is to develop that contemplative mind that is able to sit in stillness and silence and and move into places of acceptance of all things, even the things that we don't agree with and the evil that we are called to resist, to know that it is here and to not be powerless because of it, but to look at it squarely in the face. And meditation for me has been a practice to, to help me do that as well as 
raging and <laughs> having the, the arguments and debating, but then always going back to that place of centeredness. Uh, I think that has been the fuel to the social justice fire that I've, I've cultivated. And, and yeah, I also think too, with dopamine stuff, we, we, we desperately need <laughs> to take time away uh, from our devices to, to help navigate that. Amen. Um, I'm so right there with you. And one other thing, the, my last question, um, which is, is one of the things that um, has really helped me navigate and cope this past year. Well, one is you and following you on social media Aww. and just like having conversations with you. You give me so not just hope, but also just, you know, power and um, inspiration and uh, solidarity. And yeah, I've, uh, you, you mean so much to me. And I, I joke around, um, that you, if there is such a thing as a prophet, you are one. And I, I do wholeheartedly believe that. So thank you oh, for your thank voice, you. but also on kind of a larger note, um, your art and art in particular has been a huge, um, a huge inspiration and kind of bomb for me as, as we navigate this world. And we actually had a really cool tweet the other day about this from one of our listeners who said, I always love pieces about, and sorry, the listener is Peterson Toscano. So shout out Peterson. Um, but he said, I always love pieces about artists and climate change, visual artists, singer songwriters. Um, my partner was a part of the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, and they knew they were winning when the artists took up the cause. And so as an artist, I was wondering if you could just speak to a little bit about, um, about, yeah, like about art and, and resistance and climate change and activism. And I, I define God as beauty. I think engaging in beauty and any type of creative work we do is important because we're, by doing so, we're engaging with the divine. We're engaging with the part of us that is bigger than our, our, our bodies and bigger than our, you know, awareness. And so art is so healing because art is about bringing order to chaos and you're bringing things that aren't connected together into connection points uh again to that interrelatedness and that interconnectivity um art is uniquely divine in that way and, and the, even our desire to do art make art to uh shine a light on art and so for me as a songwriter writing songs is a solace so writing songs is my greatest therapy <laughs> uh writing a lyric uh in wrestling with that lyric and trying to get the best out of that lyric um is a form of spiritual practice and it's a form of actually i, I can't control climate change i can do my best to mobilize and and, and we all can and, and i think there are solutions out there but me as an individual cannot do that and and so giving up control creating a vulnerable space through art, which is art is very vulnerable to, to give up that control and to say, I can't control that, but I can do this right here. And I can create something in this moment that is beautiful and reminds me of the beauty that's all around. me. And I, I think more than ever, we need artists. We need true artists. Uh, Cause there is a difference between good art and bad art. Uh, but all good art is that which reflects that, which is particularly and universally true. So what we need is art that shares our vulnerability, our particular stories, our narratives, our pain, our frustration, our joys, our celebration. All of it is welcome, not just some of it. And I think through that release of art, we will continue to help inspire people to do what is moral, what is just, what is right. Let's leave it there. And thank you so much for joining us, William Matthews. You're welcome. Love you, William.
All right, that just about does it for us. Marianne and I want to thank y'all so much for listening. Thanks to our sponsor, the Sierra Club, and to the amazing band River Wireless for our theme music. This episode was produced by podcaster guru Zach Mack, who, despite living in L.A., did not go to the Golden Globes. But if he had, we are sure he would have worn black in solidarity with all of the women out there. Subscribe to us on iTunes, and please also leave us a review on iTunes. This really helps us out. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we will be posting all episodes and updates on our Twitter page, at NPLH Podcast, so be sure to follow us there. If you like our show or have any questions, comments, suggestions, or want to be part of our show by reading a dinner party climate fact for an upcoming episode, tweet at us. Again, we're at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there is no place like home. <laughs>